Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Life is full of awesome what ifs, and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Welcome to the Healthy Gut Podcast with Rebecca Coombs, the place where you can learn how to achieve a happy, healthy gut. Here's what's coming up on today's show. Welcome to episode 65 of the Healthy Gut Podcast. If you haven't already listened to my live interview with Dr. Mark Pimentel from last week, I strongly recommend you go back and take a listen to that. That's episode 64. Dr. Pimentel joined me live in Los Angeles to talk about his groundbreaking research on hydrogen sulfide SIBO, the third gas of SIBO, which up until recently has not been able to be identified. So it was a fascinating discussion with Dr. Pimentel, and he also answered a whole heap of questions that my listeners had submitted. So go back and listen to episode 64. I've been really busy. I've just returned from the United States where I attended the SIBO Symposium in Portland, Oregon. It was a fantastic event filled with amazing speakers talking about all sorts of uh, new and interesting things that we should be considering when it comes to digestive health. So I do look forward to sharing a wrap up of that event with you very shortly. Coming up on today's show, we're joined by Chris Gebhardt, who is actually one of my own naturopaths. I'm so lucky to have him in Melbourne, Australia with me. And we talk about the important topic of life after SIBO. We get so fixated on the actual SIBO treatment that we often forget to think what happens beyond SIBO and how we should be approaching that. So Chris and I chat about that and I'm sure you will find this absolutely fascinating. He is a wealth of knowledge. Chris is a registered acupuncturist and naturopath and since graduating as a naturopath in 1995, he has gone on to practice and study extensively, including an undergraduate degree in acupuncture and postgraduate studies in Japanese acupuncture, Emmet technique and internship at the Guanzi TCM hospital in China. Chris delivers a unique style of physical therapy that offers quick and lasting relief to a broad range of musculoskeletal issues. He also works closely with Natalie Crutterden, my other naturopath, uh, in the care of patients with fertility issues and SIBO. Chris is also highly sought after as a practitioner for those suffering from chronic and complex digestive disorders. If you would like to get access to the show notes from today's episode, they're available at thehealthygut.co forward slash life hyphen after hyphen SIBO. 
And don't forget, guys, if you would like a full transcription of this episode, you can get it by signing up for free as a member of the Healthy Gut Podcast. There's absolutely zero cost to sign up. All you need to do is pop your name and email address on the show notes page and you will be emailed with the transcription from today's episode and every episode in season two. So without further ado, here is Chris Gebhardt and I talking about life after SIBO. Welcome to the Healthy Gut Podcast. Chris, it's great to have you on the show today. Thank you. And we are going to be talking about life after SIBO. Uh, there's so much focus spent for those of us with SIBO on living with SIBO, dealing with SIBO, treating SIBO, that sometimes we forget what happens next. And that's what we're going to be talking about today. Yeah. So uh, I guess this this conversation came up between us because we had done uh, a webinar on this subject. So we're going to try and cover some of that stuff again. And um, yeah, so we'll see how we go. So the main reason that I thought it would be an interesting topic is that often um, amongst forums and, and uh, other podcasts that I've seen around, there isn't so much information about what happens afterwards um, other than, you know, the use of uh, prokinetics and, um, and, and a lot of waiting and seeing what happens and then possibly re, re-treating SIBO. So um, I just wanted to maybe talk a little bit about in, in our practice how that differs a little bit, um, particularly in, in the way that I think um, or what happens to cause SIBO. And then also, as a follow-on to that, um, I thought it'd be interesting to talk a little bit about uh, my experience with my patients and FODMAP intolerances and how I think that that's tied in with uh, dysfunction and structural change in the small bowel as a result of having SIBO. And then what I've seen in my patients uh, after having done some repair work, after clearing SIBO and, um, you know, the, the fact that a lot of my patients can once again have FODMAP foods, which is pretty exciting. Um, but again, you don't hear a lot about that. So I thought it's a really interesting topic uh, to talk about because it's relevant to anyone who has SIBO. And also just about improving gut function afterwards and... and um, one of the, the things that we talked about last time was that there's a lot of emphasis, particularly in the research around SIBO, about clearing the SIBO and then uh, this idea that it is a chronic relapsing condition. So, and, and while that is true and while a lot of people do relapse, um, I was a little surprised at the numbers that they talk about because that wasn't reflected in, in our practice. Certainly there are patients who do and... As you know, everyone's different. What people do afterwards is different. Um, and some people, once they've finished the SIBO treatment, will then um, stop everything and, and, and maybe make some, you know, some more permanent dietary changes as a result of that, but, um, and then you know, pretty much leave it. And, and those are the patients that will typically come back um, with symptoms again. And, uh, but yeah, so I just wanted to talk a little bit about those patients that do go on and do the gut repair program that we, that, well, certainly I can speak for myself, myself and to somewhat, uh, Natalie, my partner, um, and the work that we do here. And also, um, we were going to have a little bit of a chat about something that we've been doing for probably around four or five months here, or maybe even six months. Um, 
based on a, a workshop that I did uh, sort of mid last year with Jason Horolik um, in interpreting and looking at the eubiome um, testing, um, which is pretty exciting, which is that DNA testing of uh, stool culture or stool uh, bacteria, I should say. So, um, and looking at the implications of that for long term gut health and, um, yeah, and, and SIBO as well. Mm, yeah, it's a, it's, I, I um, am fascinated by it and uh, yourself, Natalie, and I, um, you two being my uh, my naturopaths who look after me, uh, we've just recently got my results in for the U-Biome test and I'm so interested in it. But let's start off with, um, I'd really like to hear your thoughts or your clinical experience around relapse rates because it is quoted that two-thirds of SIBO patients will relapse. And I'll share with you what, what I believe is one of the causes of that. And I and because of what I see and hear from SIBO patients that contact me from all around the world, and that is there seems to be not enough focus on what's next and also what caused the SIBO. It feels to me that SIBO treatment is quite topical in the sense that, oh, you've got an overgrowth of bacteria, let's kill off the excess bacteria. Not you've got adhesions or your stomach acid is not at the right pH level or you've had, you know, whatever it is. Yep. Um, and let's address those things as well as the fact that you've got an overgrowth of bacteria. And I suspect that that's why relapse is so high mm. because the underlying cause or causes is just not being addressed. And, of course, then the SIBO returns. Yep. Would you? Do you feel that my, my theory there is kind of – is fair in yep. assuming that? Yeah, absolutely. And and I think it's a really interesting topic because I know there's a lot of talk around about uh, the autoimmune aspect or, you know, the, it, it's sort of more of a theoretical um, sort of model for what causes that dysfunction in the in the migrating motor complex, which is thought to be behind why there is a, an overgrowth in, in bacteria in the small bowel, which shouldn't really be there. So, um, so it is normal to have some small amounts of bacteria in the small bowel but but we're talking about those those amounts that produce excess gas um, which you would normally find on a positive SIBO test breath test for lactulose or glucose um, and so I it's actually really interesting to see I use the um, the lactulose test mostly in my practice um, and the it's quite an interesting little test in itself because in some cases where you've got um, uh, a SIBO positive test, which is um, where you don't have high baseline levels, um, which can be a little bit complicated, and I'll talk about that in a minute. But in in that normal positive test where you've got slightly elevated, maybe low levels at, in the first sort of um, three uh, tests, and then at around the 40, 60 minute mark in the test, you see a the beginnings of elevation of uh, either hydrogen or methane and and that can also go down so we're looking at a rise of methane or hydrogen within the first 120 minutes and so for me given that we know you know with some some accuracy obviously that, that it's not a perfect test but if we say for argument's sake that that it does take 120 minutes to get to the end of the small bowel and the ileocecal valve, which is you know that junction of the large and, and small bowel, that if you see the the gas production, you know, sort of relatively low until later on in the test. So looking at sort of 
you know, 100 to 120 minutes and you see that spike, um, that usually indicates to me that there's probably more of an issue with the distal uh, small bowel. And given that the, the small intestine is a pipe, there's only two ways you can get into it, and that's from the stomach or from the large intestine. And so that tells me already that there's, there's potentially issues with either, uh, as you mentioned before, uh, uh, low stomach acid, which is a higher pH, or um, potentially an issue with the uh, regulation or function of the ileocecal valve, which is sort of like a trapdoor. It should be a one-way valve, but in some people it becomes dysfunctional and uh, stays open uh, for too long. And uh, that allows for bacteria to flow in a retrograde way and, and start to colonise the small bowel. I don't know how far up they can actually travel. Um, I, I, I like to think that they don't go all that far. So the, the patients where I see high levels up in the, you know, around the 40, 60 minute mark, often that equates with the symptoms they're experiencing. So I find that they're the people that have um, often lots of uh, substernal, sort of just under the diaphragm pressure. Um, and a lot of their symptoms are in the upper part where they're getting, you know, maybe it's indigestion, burping, reflux, it associated with, um, with that feeling of bloating and fullness. And so in those patients, I'm, I'm always curious, and, and, and sometimes in the history you can see that uh, either they've had a history of using proton pump inhibitors, which reduce the production of stomach acid, in which case you're pretty much opening the, 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 the front door to the small intestine. And, um, but in other people, that the, unfortunately we can't test it in this country, but certainly through symptoms we can ascertain whether there's a likelihood that they're suffering from hypochlorhydria, which is that lower stomach acid, which, which if you think of the stomach as a fiery cauldron, uh, it's it's the first line of defence because once it gets past the stomach, you're you're uh, you're basically in immune territory, and so that's like the you know the moat to the castle. And if if invaders can cross that and get into the castle, then you know your your the potential um, effects there are, are quite vast. And so that talks to food intolerances where proteins aren't being digested properly, um, which is often a accompanying issue with SIBO and and digestive dis dysfunction um yeah so but anyway so that idea that the stomach is not functioning properly is a really important one um and i see in my practice when we start to increase that usually in initially through supplementation but it ties in with another one of my favorite things which is zinc and um there's a an enzyme that's responsible for the production of hydrochloric acid which is a zinc dependent enzyme but the problem is if you've got low stomach acid you can't often absorb zinc very efficiently which then creates this vicious cycle where you don't have enough zinc to actually produce the right amounts of stomach acid um, so that's something that we, we do look at and, and has has been quite a successful strategy in my practice um, and how do you look at that what do you do? Do you run tests? How? Yeah. So it is a really tricky one. I, I, I do use, uh, as I said before, history is a big one, so that will often point. Um, so if there is a medication, then, then obviously that's a key indicator. Um, also, yeah, symptoms. So people who are experiencing those symptoms of burping, reflux, indigestion, 
um, those are the patients that I'm suspicious of, um, you know, outside of uh, the hyperacidic state because the symptoms are quite similar. So sometimes it's, it's not easy to differentiate. Um, but we'll often do a trial with something like Biogest, um, which is a, a supplemental form of hydrochloric acid. It also has some digestive enzymes, uh, pancreatic enzymes, I should say, and some um, and bile salts. So, and if my patients feel better with that, then it generally tells me that we're heading in the right direction. But the idea is not that you need to rely on uh, supplements forever. It's about trying to restore balance back to that system. So one of the... Um avenues for SIBO to develop is issues with the stomach and we've talked about the ileocecal valve as well and and actually uh, you've done some work around my ileocecal valve because I now know I'm full of adhesions yes. and I've got this huge mass around my ileocecal valve yeah. which now explains a lot around why one of the reasons why I've developed SIBO. Yeah. Um, is there for I've been talking to many people in recent times about adhesions because to me it was such a light bulb awareness piece of going, oh, my gosh, I didn't even know about these things and I'm full of them. <laughs> um, when uh, Because you do um, sort of manual therapy or uh, – uh, you're multi-skilled in, in what you can do. Um, but how can people sort of uncover whether they might have adhesions? And I do have full yeah. podcasts on them, so do go and listen to them. But just in your practice, how yeah. you would identify that? Yeah, so um, it's quite an interesting area because I'm not – there are people who are specifically trained in treating adhesions and that's all they do in their practice, so that's their primary focus. Um, I actually don't know of any practitioners around here that do that, but I know that you've had some experience in the States um, certainly with that. Um, having said that, there are some links, and I remember um, at uh, one of the conferences that we, uh, the, the first one in Melbourne, uh, we had a, I think she was a physiotherapist who, who does um, work with adhesions. So uh, my the work that I do is slightly different. Even though we're working on adhesions, it's actually coming from a uh, Chinese medical perspective and, and techniques that are based on reducing adhesions and scar tissue um, using acupuncture and also manual therapy. So... Um, there are many ways of, of attacking it, but um, they can be quite tricky to treat there, obviously, because it's a structural uh, issue and, and scar tissue is, is hard to break down. So it can be done, but it does take time. Um, and I would say, you know, there are, there are obviously degrees of, of adhesions as well, depending on what the patient's history is and how much surgery they've had or how much trauma they've had to the abdomen. Um, all the way down to just simple issues with the ileocecal valve, which sometimes can be related to uh, neurological stimulation. So there can be issues with the, the spine that mean that, you know, that communication is not working properly, which affects nerve function. Um, so, but I do, I will generally test all of my patients for that. And because I'm trained to treat or to feel abdomens, I, I know what, what a normal abdomen feels like. I know what an abnormal uh, feeling abdomen is and um, and so for me it, it's quite obvious to my hands but obviously you would want to go and seek someone who knows what they're doing because it's not an easy thing uh, to diagnose um, unless you're trained to do that and to know what you're feeling. Yeah. So alongside the ileocecal valve, are there any other key areas that you look at in terms of supporting a patient once you've cleared that excess bacteria yeah so for me uh i i normally talk about 
this idea that those gases that are being produced by uh, the bacteria, whether they be uh, methane or hydrogen or hydrogen sulfide, as being quite toxic. And so uh, the, there is some research about this, but the idea that you know, there is some functional and structural change that happens, or the functional change comes secondary to the structural change in the, the wall of the small intestine. So uh, I normally draw a, a picture for my patients, but um, the, the, the wall of the bowel, the small bowel, is, is um, covered in, in finger-like projections called villi. And over those finger-like projections are uh, hairs, which are called microvilli, and those have a secretory function. So they secrete enzymes and uh, immune, uh, immune support um, and modulating factors into the lumen of the bowel. Uh, so if you have a stumping of those or a dysfunction in the structure of those uh, fingers, that normally translates into uh, changes in function of, of that, uh, that organ. And the small and the large in intestine are actually quite different organs, even though they're connected and they are part of a long tube. Um, their function and structure are slightly different. And so the, the, the large intestine is, is, is an, a separate organ that... that uh, is able to con uh, expand and contract. So I like to think of that like an accordion. So it is normal to have gas in the large intestine. Obviously, the degree of gas is is uh, is questionable. You know how how much, what's a normal amount of gas? Um, that depends on on what people are eating and the type of bacterial balance they have. But so having gas there doesn't actually cause any trouble typically outside of discomfort and, and possibly symptoms from pressure. Um, but in the small bowel, as I said before, the, the, those hydrogen and methane gases are quite toxic. And if you do get change in the architecture in those fingers, um, you lose that secretory function, which means, uh, and, and a good example of where this can become a problem is in FODMAP intolerances, which I would suggest probably 95% of my patients with SIBO have. Um, and often they come to me having already been to um, either a dietitian or other clinics where they're um, been diagnosed uh, via breath testing, um, often, uh, well, through fructose and, and other, depending on what they've had done. But they come with that diagnosis. But what they've been told to do is to go away and just, you know, stop eating the foods that are, that are um, causing them trouble. So, but often they're, they're, there's not much follow-up on that. So um, I found that quite interesting because long-term a low FODMAP diet is, is actually not very healthy for your large intestine ecology. So the bacteria because FODMAPs are food for, for bugs. So if you're taking those foods away, then, then you will change that, uh, that ecology. Um, you'll affect their relative numbers and balance, and therefore that will have flow-on effect to you know, systemic changes and, and also um, immune changes and, and all those things that are related to having healthy and um, abundant bacteria. Yeah. Before we dive headfirst into the nutrition piece, because it is such an important piece and and something that all of us with SIBO long for the day we can eat freely. Uh, it's what everybody says. I just want to be able to eat what I used to eat. Um, but when we're, I, I'm just wanting to kind of close the piece around, uh, you know, how you would perhaps go about treating somebody that has um, low stomach acid and perhaps there's an ileocecal valve dysfunction, you can see that there's multiple things at play that are contributing or 
could contribute to a, a SIBO relapse. How do you approach dealing with that and then we'll move into the what you do with food? Yeah, sure. Um, so, again, obviously that depends on the history. Um, I, I just wanted to firstly just finish up with, with that idea that um, – the big focus of my uh, my follow up to having after having cleared SIBO is actually to focus on restoring uh, because we've taken away that noxious influence which which is that damaging factor which is the gases so it's a bit like trying to say well it, you can't really repair a city while it's being bombed so the first you know the trump card in treating all gut. Um, health issues is is SIBO in my opinion um, because if you don't do that then it, it prohibits you from really moving forward because there's a lot of foods that you can't have again because if you're eating fermentable foods and you've got bacteria in the wrong place you're going to be creating gases which will just exacerbate everything we've just talked about so clearing that is 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 obviously essential and then what I normally focus on afterwards is if there is uh, a stomach acid, acid deficiency or, you know, I have, uh, I, I normally try to help my patients come off proton pump inhibitors if it's, if it's relevant. Um, and I've done that, um, you know, I've had quite a bit of experience doing that and that is definitely possible. Um, and a lot of people, I mean, proton pump inhibitors should not really be used long term anyway because they have quite a... A damaging effect on the body systemically long term through uh, nutrient malabsorption and other factors. So, and even on the 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 uh, the warnings on the the packet, it says you know shouldn't be used for periods longer than six weeks. But as you probably know, as what I see in my practice is that once people are put on proton pump inhibitors, it's usually for life. So <laughs> you can imagine what what happens there. You know, you're opening up, you know, passage from bacteria, from your oral cavity, from food to be coming in constantly, uh, inoculating the small intestine with bacteria and then, you know, setting up the, the likelihood of forming SIBO. So that's one factor. Um, the other thing is obviously small bowel motility. So I know that's a big uh, area of, of, uh, of focus for lots of practitioners and, and so I won't talk too much about it because I'm sure that that's been covered um, but I do pay some attention to that because keeping the motility going is, is really important but um, the autoimmune aspect of that I, I'm, I'm not sure I, I, I suspect that in, in doing what I'm about to talk about that on some level that must be influencing that and, and uh, that, you know, that effect on the motor cells because, um, as I said to you earlier, I think you know, those, it's hard for me to qualify the, the rates of relapse in my practice. Um, but I would say that it's certainly nowhere near what, what you mentioned in, in you know, uh, what you said before. Um, and I think partly that is because you know, SIBOs, everyone sort of kind of gets focused on the SIBO, but my question is always, well, if you've got SIBO, why have you got SIBO? And unless you ask that question, you, you can never really overcome that, 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 um, that habit that will, you know, maybe form again. And so, you know, that, that really is uh, where you have to be a little bit of a detective sometimes. Um, sometimes it's trial and error. But I think also coming back to fixing the, the, the wall of the small intestine, Though I use uh, lots of nutrients to do that. Um, zinc is my absolute favourite because it does uh, repair a leaky gut by itself, um, as does glutamine and there are a number of other agents, but they're my primary ones. The other thing is that in my practice I see very commonly uh, a 
concurrent infection in the small bowel um, often, and I think you've just done a webinar on this subject with my partner, uh, which is yeast overgrowth. And um, that's a massive factor, and it can actually complicate being able to read uh, the way the treatment's going. So I will always look into that in my practice, and, and if that's an issue, then we, we address that. But zinc certainly by itself is um, one of my favorite ways of treating uh, an overgrowth of uh, yeast, and it seems to be quite effective in high doses. Um, so that's that's one aspect and then obviously as we talked about a little bit before i will uh look at pa my patients bellies and and uh, look at their history if there's any possibility of adhesions um i generally try to address that with the body work that i do um and then after we've done that uh at that point um we start to look at the the balance of the large intestine and the the ecology there and and so I'm, I'm now encouraging all of my patients, and, and most of them are doing it, some don't, but most of them do, go and get their uh, stool uh, tested through Ubiome, which is an, a relatively inexpensive thing to do now, um, but is so so amazing uh, in, in what it can give you compared to the, the archaic stool culturing methods, which show us you know maybe 0.5 to 5% of our total ecosystem. So we've missed... You know the vast majority of the players, um, and now you know through the work of you know Jason Horlick and and um, the research that's coming out now in abundance, um, the understanding of of uh, the the types of bacteria that live in our colon, um, and the roles that they play are becoming um, more known, and but it's certainly an evolving field and. Um, but yeah, the focus is is then about trying to understand what what are p the particular imbalances are in that ubiome test, um, and what I find a lot in my practice is with a lot of um, you know as a result of the standard Western diet and lifestyle and stress and history of antibiotic use that um, the diversity in in lots of the patients that I've seen their test results come through has been suboptimal. So. Um, <clears throat> not only that reduction in diversity, but also the balance of um, the skewing of, of bacteria towards the gram-negative bacteria. And the gram-negative bacteria are big players, and in a lot of my patients I see quite large numbers of those, and, and obviously that, that's not ideal because um, they all contain uh, in their cell wall a... Um, something called a lipopolysaccharide which is a fat and like like humans they have a life cycle all bacteria will eventually die and when they die the the uh, the release of those lipopolysaccharides as the you know as the decay of that that um, organism happens is released and so obviously the, the more uh, the more lipopolysaccharides or the more gram-negative bacteria you have the more lipopolysaccharides you're going to be producing and those uh uh, well known now to cause leaky gut in their own right. So they, they're, they're like dam busters. So they will break through and once they're through, uh, then they've got a passage into the bloodstream, which we now know uh, once if the you know, raises, rising of levels of lipopolysaccharides have been associated with lots of chronic inflammatory diseases, Alzheimer's, cardiovascular disease, cancer, you know, lots of, lots of chronic inflammatory conditions have been linked to high levels of LPS in the blood. And I've just recently done my ubiome test and it's fascinating. It's so interesting uh, to see what little critters are in there and in what percentage they're in there. Um, one of the things that I, what I uh, really 
um, I think a lot about at this point in time uh, and it's something that's ha- that has evolved over the last three years since I was diagnosed with SIBO is just around um, feeding the broader microbiota uh, within your whole gut ecosystem rather than just being so focused on SIBO like I was for a long time. Um, and obviously we talked about how FODMAPs play a really important role, but for many of the people listening today, they have been following a strict low FODMAP diet for years. And the moment that they deviate from that, they're, they're crippled with symptoms. How do you get your patients to start expanding with their food? Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey guys, do you feel completely overwhelmed when it comes to figuring out what you can eat that's suitable for a SIBO diet? I know that I felt so overwhelmed at the start of my SIBO journey. And let's be honest, eating for SIBO can be challenging. It can downright suck at points. You've already got so much going on. You've got your treatments. You're trying to remember to take all your medications and your supplements. And not to mention all of the daily symptoms that you have to experience. The pain, the bloating, the constipation or diarrhea or both, and the brain fog and exhaustion. The list just goes on. Having someone else take that hassle away from you for planning your food can make your day just that little bit easier. And this is where I've come to your rescue. I've developed SIBO meal plans just for you. They take all of the stress away from planning your SIBO daily food intake. They're based on the SIBO biphasic diet by Dr. Narala Jacobi, and each meal plan is just for the specific phase it relates to. So you may be on phase one restricted, or phase one semi-restricted, or phase two reduce and repair, and there is a meal plan just for you. We've got 14 days of SIBO-friendly meals and recipes included. There's weekly shopping lists. There's handy hints and tips to make cooking easier. And every recipe is 100% gluten-free. The recipes are low-grain. We only use a little bit of rice or quinoa in the recipes depending on what phase you're following, of course. All the recipes are low carbohydrate, very low dairy, low sugar, and there are low FODMAP options included. The great news is that you can download it instantly and you can get cooking today. If you'd like to know more about the SIBO meal plans, head to thehealthygut.co forward slash SIBO hyphen meal hyphen plans or head to the show notes from today's episode and just click on the link there. I hope you enjoy the meal plans, guys. I know it's going to save you so much time, energy and effort and help you be compliant to your SIBO diet as you go through your treatment. Now let's get back to the show. 
for many of the people listening today, they have been following a strict low FODMAP diet for years. And the moment that they deviate from that, they're, they're crippled with symptoms. How do you get your patients to start expanding with their food yeah so uh slowly <laughs> so and everyone's different so i I'll, I'll just talk in general terms but um so once the SIBO's cleared um it's like you know to some degree you've got a clean slate and at that point um you know humans are complex and uh Every, every patient is different and every case of SIBO is different. It has to be treated differently and unique. Uh, so some of them, you know, obviously with, with all that dysfunction that we were talking about just earlier, uh, the, the potential for problems in, in, in many areas can come about. So there could be food sensitivities or sensitivities to chemicals in foods like salicylates and amines. And so... I mean, all of that is just a symptom of dysfunction and a system that's not in balance. So I, if, if those are obvious, then obviously we, we try to restrict those in the short term. But ultimately, I think coming back to that bacterial balance in the long term, the greater the diversity, the greater the balance in favour of, you know, the, the more the gram positives and um, those that aren't pro-inflammatory, they also... The nutrients that we take in and and the absorption of nutrients is dependent on that balance of bacteria as well. So, in the long term, getting that ultimately getting to that point where you can can you can rearrange that that ecosystem to uh, to work for you rather than against you is one of the best things you can do to improve tolerances. So, because if you've if you've cleared um, if you've cleared the SIBO and you've done good gut repair your functioning capacity of that organ system should have improved. Uh, and uh, the other thing that I've seen in my practice quite a lot, which was quite surprising when I first saw it, um, and you don't read about this very much, but I, I have seen where lots of my patients are now eating foods that they couldn't conceive of eating before um, and tying that to the FODMAPs. So, you know, apples and, and onions and things like that, I've got patients who are now eating, which, you know, before that, that would have, you know, been a horrendous thought to even eat a small amount of those. So, so the potential is there. Um, but as I said, it is complex and, and how you get there and it depends obviously on um, how committed you are and, um, and the complexity of your case. But I would say that normally I would, the idea is to try and improve the diversity in your diet as soon as possible but doing it very slowly. So um, I do uh, use, even during the, the SIBO treatment, I know a lot of people use just the biphasic diet. I'm, I'm not dogmatic about what I do in my practice I just try and do what's easiest for my patients so I tend to break a lot of the rules of you know that you hear around um, just trying to make it easier because it's notoriously hard to treat it's hard to commit to it's uh, low sugar so energy is an issue for my patients as you would probably most of your listeners would know so I try to get to the point where we can be eating some, you know, relatively low fermentable carbohydrates as soon as possible to try and improve the energy status of the patient so that then they can actually uh, allow themselves to make those changes or have the, you know, the motivation to make the changes. Because if you're tired, it's very hard to make any decisions, um, let alone about preparing foods and because we're talking about eating whole foods. But one of the things that um, 
you know, there is an urgency to, to get away from those diets because I don't think there's a, a healthy diet on the planet long term. So I think in my mind there's just healthy eating and there's healthy foods. And so for, for keeping it simply, I think, you know, the more diversity of, you know, fruits and vegetables and, you know, predominantly a plant-based diet seems to be what is the healthiest for human guts. And um, certainly, you know, diets like the paleo diet and... and um, the, which, when it's done balanced, I think is a very good diet. But I think a lot of people get obsessed with the protein and fat components, and and they're well known to to disrupt the balance of the gut of the uh, large intestine bacteria. So, and they will skew that balance towards the gram negative bacteria, which then produces inflammation. And so, long term, that's not a healthy diet either. So, I think, you know, if you can aim to have the most diversity in your vegetable intake, some fruits. Um, so that that's that's kind of my goal. And I think um, the, the quicker we can do that, the better. Because I've heard of patients being on, you know, the SIBO diet and, and low FODMAP diets long term. And, and they they have obvious negative effects on, on your health as well. Plus, you know, I guess with diversity, you get diversity of nutrients as well. Yeah. So, yes. And Dr. Jason Horolak, uh, you know, in his initial, he and I have had a session now after waiting for 12 months to see him. And one of his guidelines is 40 or more plant-based foods. So plants, so vegetables as we know them, fruits, seeds, nuts and legumes, 40 or more per week. And uh, I eat a lot of vegetables. I've got a um, – my partner and I have actually decided this year um, after being vegetarian for seven years and then doing the SIBO diet and doing paleo, I felt like I'd just eaten way too much meat. So we're actually bringing back in just strict vegetarian meals into our week so that we're not eating protein every single meal. And um, and that's definitely going to help me get to 40 or more vegetables, but it's a lot. Yeah. It's a lot of – it is different things to eat. Yeah, and it, and it's all whole food, so you have to prepare all of that, which goes back to what I was saying earlier. Is that, you know, if if someone's tired and and you know hasn't been you know feeding themselves well because of you know lack of ability because of re- food reactions, um, it is you know it's a very strong priority to get that that repair done because. You know that 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 large intestine balance is totally dictated to by the health of everything upstream, um, because you can't go and feed that stuff before you clean up up you know the, the the upstream stuff. And so, it is there is a very kind of logical progression in the treatment in my eyes. And um, but I think also if if I, I do focus at the beginning of of the treatment uh, on firstly trying to establish um, a a number of foods that that patient can have safely. Um, and so the reason I do that first before giving supplements is that then we always have a safe place for them to go because the treatments can get very complex. And when you're taking multiple supplements and introducing different foods, it's very hard to read exactly what's going on. So I think um, I, I, I don't like to rush the treatment. And, and I know some people are keen to get uh, the treatment done faster um, for obvious reasons. But um, I think if you can maintain a clear and methodical method uh, to treatment um, and have that safety pad all the time, and I, I ask my patients to keep quite detailed notes so that there's no confusion. You know, after not seeing someone for two or three weeks, it's very easy to forget 
what was working, what, what was aggravating, what wasn't. So um, I, d I do encourage my patients to do that so that we can maintain clarity. But the idea is after SIBO uh, is clear that, um, and, and after we've done, you know, probably on average about a month to, you know, six weeks of some very strong focused effort on, on trying to repair uh, the, the, the villi and the microvilli, um, is then to start to reintroduce some foods uh, slowly. And um, I usually use uh, guide that by uh, another um, diet protocol for treating SIBO called the fast track diet. So I do cherry pick from that and try to stay in the sort of the green and amber sections of those. But um, white potatoes like Desiree potatoes are, are very low fermentable. They're not on the biphasic diet, but um, that's something that I find a lot of my patients uh, have a lot of joy when they are able to reintroduce that. Um, and also you can, you know, making potato salads and allowing that resistant starch to, uh, to, to form by cooling um, potatoes after they've been heated is also a benefit long term for um, getting that, that balance in the, uh, the bacteria in the large bowel. Yeah. I think one of the frustrations for a SIBO patient is that there's no one diet yes. for a person to follow. Um, diets can seem to be contradictory to each other. Yep. You know, the fast track diet allows potatoes. The SIBO biphasic diet doesn't include potatoes. It can be really, you can feel like no one really knows what they're doing. Yep. How do you handle patients that uh, you know, perhaps in that zone where they're feeling really frustrated that they can't just be given a sheet and told what to do. Yeah. So that's why it's a, it's a strong focus is to try and get them to the point where they have uh, enough um, food at their disposal that they can actually get through a day without having to struggle too much. Um, so... Yeah, it is tricky, um, but that's why you know when when we first started using the biphasic diet, and and this is not a criticism of it, it's just just what I found in my practice. So you know there is no one system. So, but I started you know we, we would be have my patients doing it quite strictly at the beginning in the you know the the first section of that, which is quite restrictive and certainly not easy to sustain um, because it's very low carbohydrate. So, but in that. Patients were still getting bloated and and um, and feeling uncomfortable in their abdomen, which kind of was a bit strange to me because you know we're trying to reduce fermentability. So why is that happening? And so I started looking into what that might be, and I, I realised, and with the help of the fast track diet, which is it was a, a fermentability ranking system of foods, and I started experimenting with that. So and and I I you know I'd be curious. I haven't really looked into the uh, to, to the the science behind it but I've certainly you know as a clinician I'm trying to you know have my patients feel better quickly so we started looking at what what could potentially be causing the problems and um, so I noticed immediately that carrot was one of the most highly fermentable vegetables there so you know I think it ranks sort of uh, at, at 10 points whereas um, you know the Desiree potato is a, a one or a zero. Um, so I, I started experimenting and taking that out of my patients' diets, and and um, was having some success there with with doing that. So that um, allowed me then to to start to consider you know that as a, an option as well. So I do use both, um, and. Uh, I try to increase portion size as well. So if my patients are comfortable with uh, in in their gut with 
um, the foods that are on on any of those, um, whether it's the biphasic or the fast track, then I encourage them to just eat a little bit more as well. Um, obviously, during the treatment, I think it's important not to eat all the time. I think having periods of fasting uh, is, is good for the migrating motor complex, so that's beneficial. But the other thing that, um, that struck me as interesting was that the, in the rices, the you can have basmati or jasmine rice in the biphasic diet, but if you look at the fermentability profile of those two rices, they're they're quite profoundly different. Um, jasmine has a zero fermentability, and I think basmati, don't quote me, is around ten or eleven as well. So I absolutely don't have my patients have any basmati rice and just stick to jasmine rice. And lots of patients are intolerant to rice, so you know that's why. It, there's no one one size for everyone, but those those things have been useful um, just to try and encourage my patients to continue. And um, the other thing that I I do that may be slightly different is um, I try to uh, we tend to I tend to retest much sooner than a lot of other practitioners because what I found was that we were having patients doing long you know treatment session you know uh, periods so you know maybe eight weeks. And then get the test results back and find that, you know, for some reason that the, the levels of uh, gas had not really reduced to my satisfaction. And uh, and so that's a long time to be taking stuff that's expensive and um, and if it's not helping, then what are you doing? So, so now I routinely retest after one month. And the reason I do that is because uh, if... if if there is a reduction in gas in that period, then it means that the treatment is working, and then we can then calculate how long uh, the treatment might be uh, need to go for after that. And I generally don't retest again after that. So, yeah, there are obviously there are exceptions to that, but for the most part, that's yeah, that's what I do. And I, I have personally found uh, comparing the diets. You know, I followed the biphasic diet. I've written cookbooks on the biphasic diet. I know it well, but I found that. Um, once I'd become a little bit more comfortable around what I was eating, that looking at, say, the low FODMAP diet, the fast track diet by Dr. Norm Robillard, um, really helped to explain why certain foods on the biphasic diet still didn't agree with me. And I was one of those patients, I could not tolerate basmati rice. But I'd think, but it's on the list. I should be able to eat it. And then I learned about the fast track diet and there was basmati rice as a very fermentable grain. And for anyone who's listening, if you'd like to hear Dr. Norm Robillard talk about the fast track diet, that's episode 18. So head back to that episode and take a listen because he does explain it well. And it, and, um, it was really helpful to me to understand or to kind of explain some of my symptoms that were present despite the fact that I was tolerating food pretty well. Yeah, it was very common. So, um, you know, it's not an easy area to work in. I, I, I think you know that it's complex and, you know, you speak to enough people who are doing it. It's not easy. And, um, but, you know, given that the, the, the research now is pointing to, you know, SIBO as being potentially up to, you know, sort of 80% of all IBS, it's a massive issue. And, um it's it's you know it's certainly not in the you know the orthodox medical camp there's nothing of, that they that they do for it so it does leave it up to practitioners out there but there's a lot of as you can tell just by what we've talked about there's a lot of confusion there's a lot of uh, conflicting information and um and so you know for me out here 
with my patients, I'm I'm doing my best, and you know sometimes we get it right. Hopefully more than not. Um, I would say you know there, there's sort of that ten to fifteen percent of patients who, for whatever reason, you know uh, some some of my patients we discover have you know um, if if it's a stubborn case, then we're looking at you know a lot of um, cases where their inflammatory bowel disorders are, are also there underlying so they may have SIBO and in fact I've, I've got quite a few cases where I've that where there's been SIBO and uh, subsequently found out that they had either Crohn's or ulcerative colitis and you know these things are, are complicated and you know food sensitivities is massive and um, yeah so but I think uh, most people, you know, do follow who follow the the protocols that we just talked about and and follow through with that um, repair program and then you know finally getting to the large bowel, which I see is kind of the the final frontier. Um, for those people, it, it, you know, the, there's some huge rewards um, in in following through with it. Um, not everyone's convinced of that at the beginning, and you know they get frustrated with the restrictions. And but I think. Um, obviously with with experience you can find you know where where those little tricks are that you know that when you're first starting out practicing doing this work it's it's incredibly confusing um and you know i still get confused but i i'm getting less confused <laughs> as the years go on so um, well it's really you know it feels like a bit of a final frontier understanding the gut and it's it's only in very recent times that there's been a lot more talk on tv and programs um, for gut and gut health and the microbiota. Uh, I know when I first started out with this journey, it was just not on the radar at all. So to recap the, you know, I guess the, as you've talked about and, and correct me if I get any of this wrong, the real process for you as a practitioner is to first and foremost clear SIBO because without clearing that, the gases are going to remain damaging and causing havoc in the gut. Yep. Um, healing the gut, looking at what else is contributing. So is there stomach acid issues? Are there adhesions at play? Are there other inflammatory conditions that might be keeping the system inflamed? And then finally moving into the replenishment or just refeeding of the large bowel and, and looking at what the diversity is. And yep. we can talk a little bit about um, Ubiome Explorer, which is yep. the test that I've done. And I know we're going to do a podcast on that itself, mm-hmm. um, but just around uh, a description that Dr. Narala Jacoby once said, which I thought was great, was that your gut is like an incredible rainforest and you just don't want your gut to be made up all of ferns or all of, you know, big, tall trees. It needs to have a huge variety of trillions of different things living in it. Yep. And I always think then about my rainforest in my gut. Yes. And, and how, are, you know, how are you going, little rainforest? <laughs> and now I know with my biome that my, my uh, diversity is 62%. Obviously, optimal is ideal. Perfect score would be 100. Yeah. So I've got some plants and trees and ferns and creatures missing out of my system. Yeah, and, and you know, it's a big, big issue now because – um, you know we're the we're sort of the second generation of antibiotics now, and um, and the, the the detrimental effect that that has had on on human beings shouldn't be underestimated. You know we're the majority of us is foreign DNA and bacteria, so we are a very small host for an, a massive ecosystem, um, and and it's not any different to the planet. So 
uh, it's it you know the even though antibiotics have saved a lot of lives, they've also created a lot of problems, and and you know we're sort of coming to the end of our ability to use them efficiently, uh, with the growth in resistance um, and superbugs, you know, formation. So so there is a real scramble at the moment to try and find other antimicrobials because we're heading back to the dark ages, unfortunately, with our treatments. Um, but uh, what it what it's also done is, um, and I've seen you know families where this has been you know. Uh, highlighted where subsequent generations because it's you know the, the, your bacteria is essentially set up from birth and and so now with you know the alarming rise in in cesarean births um you know obviously if if you have to have a cesarean birth i'm not suggesting that it's a bad thing i just but we are seeing many more than we used to and as a result of that you're not getting that natural transition through the birth canal which is that initial coating of bacteria uh, to the infant, um, which then, you know, when the mother starts breastfeeding and, and that's another part that's often neglected, well, not neglected, but some women aren't able to breastfeed or some choose not to. So for whatever reason it is, without judging that, the 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 breast milk is high in galactogolosaccharide, which is a, uh, it's like a turbo boost for bacterium. So if you don't have that initial coating, and then you know the the follow up with the breast milk, um, you don't get that foundation, um, and you're only getting the bacteria. If if that happens, you're only getting the bacteria that the mother has. And if if she's come from you know history or a background where she's had multiple exposures to antibiotics over her life or in utero or whatever, um, then that is going to be passed on. And so every subsequent generation then is having this you know reduced diversity, and and the health implications of that are we're only just beginning to realize um, and there's a, a lot of work being done in this field right now so but I think you know so it's very difficult to you, that idea of um, you know I used to think that you could take probiotics and, and re-inoculate your gut well that's we now know that that's not true um, in fact uh, the vast majority of probiotics don't actually colonize they pass through and perform functions so while you're taking them they will have an effect and that effect stops once you finish so they are useful for treating conditions and and for maintaining um for controlling symptoms but um you also have to under underneath that taking those uh is is really feed that ecosystem with the fertilizer um and that's the prebiotics and colonic foods that uh, you touched on you know the polyphenols and you know things that give color diversity of vegetables and and you know fruits and plants really um legumes as well but you know it's complex with SIBO patients because you know those are the things they're like poison so um so it has to be done in, at the end because if you do it early you'll just aggravate everything but i think um you know for those that get through and can you know the ubiome test is just such a, a profound test in what it shows us now um and and the take-home message is that 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 ecosystem can be restored somewhat um you know the only way at this stage of, of re-inoculating bacteria is through um, fecal microbial transplant but um, but you can influence that diversity or I should say the numbers and the balance of that ecosystem from what you have by choosing you know uh, better foods um, to consume and you know it's not a short-term diet it's it has to be a long-term shift because as soon as you shift away from that you're 
ecosystem will will uh, will change accordingly. So if you went back to a you know a high protein, high fat diet after having eaten lots of vegetables and legumes and prebiotics, it will shift back over time. And uh, so I guess the the take home for that is that that educating patients on on shifting their understanding of what what foods are and how they affect their health. Um, so that they can make more permanent changes to the choices that they make is really important. And I think that's one of the things that comes with the passage of time with dealing with SIBO. In the early days, many people are saying things like, and they say it to me, uh, I'll get through my treatment as quickly as possible and I just want to get back to normal, what is has been their normal. And what generally happens with people is that their normal shifts as it has with mine and uh, your new normal, you can't imagine in the early days that that will ever become your normal because why would you, you don't, you don't see the purpose of eating like that. But now, um, you know, years down the track for me, three years down the track, uh, my new normal is very different and I really enjoy the way my new normal is yeah, and how it absolutely. makes me feel. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Chris, thank you so much for coming back onto the Healthy Gut Pod. Not back onto. You've been you've been on my uh SIBO coaching program and then I've finally been been able to get some time in your very busy schedule for the SIBO for the Healthy Gut podcast. Getting my two things confused. <laughs> um I'm hoping that we're going to come back for a future podcast episode to talk about Ubiome and my results and uh, and share with my listeners a little bit about what they said about me. Yep. I've touched on it and uh, and then what things look like as we progress through time because we will be actively working on my on the diversity of my gut, which yeah. I'm really excited It'll be fun about. To watch. Yeah, I love really being a science experiment. Yes, indeed. <laughs> Chris, if people want to reach out and connect with you, how can they make contact? Yeah, so uh, either uh, through our uh, clinic, which is uh, Resonance Therapy in Melbourne. Uh, so we have a website, which is www.resonancetherapy.com.au or um, if they want to email, uh, which is also on the website, uh, my email address is uh, chris, so C-H-R-I-S, at resonance r-e-s-o-n-a-n-c-e therapy.com.au so chris at resonance therapy.com.au and all of those links are in the show notes including the link for the ubiome test it's 89 us dollars so it is not expensive at all but it's well worth it but you do need someone who knows what they're doing to help interpret it because there's a lot of data but thank you so much for coming on to the healthy gut podcast today you're welcome hope you enjoyed my episode today with Chris he is just such a phenomenal practitioner and a wealth of knowledge if you would like to get today's show notes make sure you head to thehealthygut.co forward slash life hyphen after hyphen SIBO and you can get the full transcription from today's show simply by joining up as a member it's absolutely free to do that all you need to do is add your name and email address in the membership section on the show notes page and you will get an email with the transcription from today's episode and all episodes from season two so it's absolutely fantastic if you like to read along make notes to the valuable information you get for free from the healthy gut podcast 
Now, you can find us on Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, Twitter, Pinterest, Google+. We are really active on social media platforms and we absolutely love connecting with you there. So come say hi. All you need to do is look for us under The Healthy Gut. And coming up on next week's show, I will finally be bringing you my nutrition webinar podcast. I have been saying I'd be bringing this to you for a couple of weeks. Apologies, guys. It uh, got uh, put to the side while we brought the amazing interview with Dr. Mark Pimentel uh, to you last week and, and now Chris's this week. So tune in next week as I talk about my second key pillar to health, nutrition. You've been listening to the Healthy Gut Podcast with your host, Rebecca Coombs. To learn more about the Healthy Gut or our podcast, head to thehealthygut.co forward slash podcast. And as we are fully funding this podcast, if you would like to help support the continuation of this podcast so that we can continue to bring you future episodes, all you need to do is make a contribution at thehealthygut.co forward slash podcast. We would like to thank Red Lemon Productions for the production and original music score of this podcast. To find out more about their services, head to redlemonproductions.com. The Healthy Gut Podcast is a production of The Healthy Gut. Thanks for listening. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.